Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Al Perkinson is someone I've looked up to for a long time. For 17 years, he was the CFO of Costa Sunglasses, where he led brand strategy, marketing, e-commerce, and more. Al is an avid fly fisherman and conservationist who has a long resume of philanthropic work. On this episode of Anchored, we discuss the benefits of polarized sunglasses, Al's departure from Costa, the struggles of starting over, and IndieFly, a foundation created to help strengthen Indigenous communities through fly fishing. If you haven't checked out the masterclasses over at anchoredoutdoors.com, then what are you waiting for? We are on fire over here and have got no plans of slowing down. Right now, you can sign up to take outdoor photography with Brian Gregson, bamboo rod building with Bob Clay, trout fishing with Outfly Fishing Outfitters, jet boating with Grant Woldridge, first 72 hours of survival with Tom Brown III, the whole fish with Chef Josh Nyland, check nymphing with Clint Goyette, pelt tanning with Sarah Cor. Oregon, classic Spay and D flies with Will Bush. The list goes on. Head on over to anchoredoutdoors.com to check out our masterclasses and use code anchoredlistener20 for 20% off. Again, that's anchoredlistener20 for 20% off. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company brews delicious craft beer that just happens to be non alcoholic. 
As someone who is regularly appointed designated driver, there are times, especially after a long hot day of rowing, where I would also like to relax and drink a cold beer after fishing. Athletic Brewing Company is the perfect substitute for those of us who crave an ice cold beverage without needing to worry about alcohol content. In 2020, they donated over $300,000 to trail restoration and backcountry safety through their Two for the Trails program, where 2% of all sales dollars went to maintaining trails and parks. Since they make non-alcoholic beer, they're able to ship it through the mail directly to you. And to sweeten the deal, they're offering free shipping on two six-packs or more. Try their award-winning beer at athleticbrewing.com and use code ANCHOR20 to get 20% off your first order. I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina in the United States. And we moved around a fair amount growing up. So we lived in North Carolina then we lived in Tennessee and Mississippi, back to North Carolina. I lived in New York City for a while and then back to North Carolina again. And uh, so I would say we've spent most of our time in North Carolina. I'm a North Carolinian. But uh, last you know, 20 years, most of the time has been in Florida. So. Yeah, that's funny because I would have assumed California or Hawaii. You know, you've got this real surfer vibe about you. Yep. I'm a Southern boy, born and bred. Right. So what about the outdoors? You know, were your your parents into the outdoors? You know, my parents weren't super into the outdoors, but my brothers and I were. So we lived on a little creek growing up and we spent just every waking hour exploring that creek, you know, up and down, catching fish and frogs and turtles. and, And then we'd go down to the beach. We weren't that far from the coast. So we'd go down to the beach a few times a year and my brothers and I would just fish the whole time and, you know, play in the ocean. And so we just fell in love with the ocean and the water and, and fishing, even though it wasn't like big time fishing, like we're lucky enough to do now. It was just little whitings and, you know, brim and spots and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, we loved it. So what were your dreams and goals? Because when I, when I think of you in the fishing industry, because you are in the fishing industry, you're one of the few people that I genuinely have no idea about your upbringing. I know about your professional life and a lot of what you've done with your career, but as far as your upbringing, I have no idea. I don't even know if you guided or anything. So walk me through a little bit about how you got in the quote-unquote industry. You know, I, I grew up, just uh, sort of a normal, almost suburban kind of life, I guess, and went to work in advertising. I Actually, in college, I got into art. So I was a sculpture major in college and thought maybe I wanted to be an artist for a while. But then I thought, you know, I, I just need to be around people a little bit more. And so I thought business would be cool. Got into advertising, worked in Ogilvy in New York for several years and thought that, you know, I could kind of combine the art and the creativity with business and then be sort of a creative business person. Cause I, all the business people I met were kind of boring and like there was no creativity or energy there. And I'm like, well, if I could be super creative, then maybe I could, you know, bring something different to the party. So I studied art and really learned how to be creative and, then kind of got into advertising, which was sort of a creative type of business. Um, and then really, if over the years, tried to bring that creativity into uh, everything that I've done on the business side, 
you know, along with my, you know, my passion for conservation and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I can see all this. All right. So, I mean, obviously the big elephant in the room is that you worked with Costa for what feels like ever. How long were you there for? And I I am going to backtrack, but just so I have an idea of your timeline, how many years were you with Costa? Uh, 17 years. Okay. The first four years I was actually on the agency side. And so Costa became my client, but they didn't really have a marketing function. So they sort of co-opted me into being the head of marketing for them even before I went to work there. And then they asked me when they finally got big enough to afford to hire me full time, they asked me to come over and, and run marketing. So it was 2000 to uh, 2017. Gotcha. So where were you before that? Before that, I was on the agency side. So I worked at an agency called Henderson in Greenville, South Carolina. And for a short time, I worked, I I went from Ogilvy in New York. I wanted to get back to North Carolina. And there weren't a lot of marketing opportunities in North Carolina. So I took a job working for uh, what was then NCMB, but later became Bank of America, uh, worked at a bank. And it was not a great fit for me. They kept telling me I had to cut my hair and I had to get more buttoned up, you know, and I was like, so finally I just like, screw it. And I left and uh, did a couple of other things and then got back into advertising. Cut your hair. When I think of you, I think about your hair. <laughs> I mean, it's, right. you, you see you from a mile away at a trade show with it. Yeah. Um, are, are you comfortable stepping into a little bit about, you know, those 17 years and how it's led to you to where you are today? I'm totally happy, you know, open book, whatever you want to ask. Yeah, sounds good. So when I think of Costa, I think of you. What a lot of people don't realize, people really, people who are in the industry will understand this, but I think for the average listener, they might not realize that. To us, you were like God, right? To get a meeting with Al at a trade show was, it was impossible to get into you. So if you could get a 10 to 15 minute slot, you'd struck it rich. <laughs> and it was because you really were a visionary when it came to advertising and marketing in the outdoor space. We've seen it. I mean, I know you're no longer with Costa, but I still attribute a lot of what Costa has done over the last couple of decades to you, which clearly makes sense considering you've been there for you're, you were there for 17 years. So let's talk a little bit about what your vision was with this marketing, because this was long before social media and influencers and, you know, where the world's gone now. What, what do you think it was about your, your ethos and your vision that made your marketing style so different to everybody else at the time? Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess if, if you look at, where I was before, you know, when I started at Ogilvy and worked on the American Express business, that is where cause-based marketing started. I was right there at the very beginning of cause-based marketing. And the way that American Express would do it is they would do a campaign in a city and they'd say, they'd pick a cause and say, for every card that gets open, we'll donate five bucks. And then for two months, anything that gets charged on the card will donate 1%. That was like revolutionary and it just blew up. People loved it, you know, and it was very successful for them. And so I tucked that away as I, you know, went through my career, I guess. And then um, I worked for a little company called Start. It was a bunch of Apple guys who started this, had this vision that, you know, it, was, it stood for spend today and retire tomorrow. 
and they signed up all these partners. And so the more you spent, the more you would save. There was a savings crisis in America and nobody had retirement savings set aside. So this was a way for our, you know, spending oriented uh, society to actually spend their way into retirement. It was, it was amazing. So it eventually went out of business, but we, uh, we had a good time trying for a while. And then, you know, as I, as I got into advertising again, you know, Yvonne Chouinard, like so many people, was, I don't know, he was just like my hero, right? My business hero. And I, I read everything that, that they were doing. And what struck me was that, hey, business is an incredibly powerful vehicle if you want to use it for good. It's, you know, it's like the old joke about the, they asked the guy, why you robbed the bank? And he said, well, that's where the money is. I mean, that's kind of how it is with business. You know, if you want to, if you want to solve problems, social problems, environmental problems or whatever, and you need funds, you need resources to do it. Well, who has those funds? You know, business has those funds. And so I just became committed to this idea that I would love to have, you know, a business that uses resources like Patagonia did to do good things. And I had this little, I had my chance with Coast Deal. It was this little brand, little tiny brand. If I could convince everybody that that was, um, you know, not only a good thing to do and the right thing to do, but a profitable thing to do, then, uh, then maybe I could get them to follow along. And, and so that 17 years with Coast Deal was I was lucky enough to just be given pretty much free reign to do what I wanted as long as we kept growing and it kept working. And it was just my little experimentation place, you know, my laboratory. And we could just, we tried everything and it was super fun. And we ended up being successful at a lot of it. And, and it was, you know, it was hard to leave um, because of that, but I could tell that that was coming to an end and, and I need to go on and look for other things. So, um, but it was a great time, and um, I feel like we did a lot of good uh, over that period of time. Yeah, and I would I can totally agree with you there. And, and you did go on to start a new sunglass company that we're going to talk about. I, being totally real here, was dumbfounded because I thought for sure you would have signed some sort of, you know, non-compete. How were you able to get away with starting a new sunglass company? That was was that something that you planned on doing, or did it just kind of happen sporadically? Well, you know, I, I uh, when Costa was purchased by Essilor, which is a large French optical company, I stuck around for a couple of years just to see, I'm like, hey, mate, if we could convince them to get behind our strategy, that's more power. Uh, we could put behind conservation and all the really cool things that we were doing. And uh, so it, you know, it was good for a, a while, but then everything started feeling like super corporate and I'm not really a corporate kind of guy. So, you know, another company Sims came along and, and uh, asked me if I would come over and join them and try to do some of the same stuff that I'd done at Costa. And it, I don't know, I hesitated. It, it was really hard because Costa was, like you said before, it was like me. I, I was Costa and Costa was me. And it was my instrument to just do all the good things I wanted to do. And there were still so many things that were in process that I wanted to see finished. But I made the decision that it just wasn't going to happen. And so I, I had another chance, moved to Montana 
and started working with Sims. Um, unfortunately, you know, they weren't willing to commit to my way of thinking. And so, uh, you know, that only lasted a couple of years, but, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a great time at Costa. And, you know, when I left, I didn't, I mean, there were no contracts. There was no non-compete or anything like that. And, and I don't think they thought, you know, two seconds about it. I mean, they're huge multi-billion dollar company. What, what could I do? Um, and so, you know, after a couple of years of being gone, you know, I always had it in the back of my mind that, hey, maybe I could start another sunglass company and really do what, what I wanted to do with it. So the opportunity presented itself and there was an opportunity in the market and uh, I just decided to man up and, and go for it. So that's what we did. <laughs> so how long of a downtime was there between Sims and now, is it Baggio? Am I saying it right? Bajio. Bajio. How yeah. long of a down period was there or downtime was there between Sims and Bajio? Well, it was sort of a, a four-year loop. So I left Costa in seven, beginning of 17, was in Montana for two years. Then we came back to Charleston, and I worked with Hook for a little bit and did some consulting for Orvis and a couple of other companies. And then, you know, Marguerite and I looked at each other and, said, look, there's just too many things that you want to do. And, you you know, it's going to be almost impossible to find some pre-established company that's going to let you do what you want to do. So we just got to go for it and start our own thing. And, you know, I kind of thought, man, I should have done this a while ago. But the timing worked out perfectly. And I'm super happy that, that we did it. You know, it's a big risk to take. And it's kind of scary just to kind of throw everything you got into it. But uh, so many people have been so nice and just so helpful. It's been really humbling. It really has. Let's talk about your mental state as an entrepreneur. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because what you're saying right now, it really hits home with me. I mean, working for corporate, realizing you've got different, not agendas, but just different Visions. I mean, I know I keep using the word vision because that's kind of what I feel an entrepreneur is, is a visionary. So when you decide you had that bit of time in between working for other people and knowing deep down that you needed to work for yourself, was there any sort of internal conflict? And I, I just want to bring this up because I know I'm contacted by a lot of, of people who would like to start their own companies or aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who might be in a different field. And they want to get into the outdoors. And I, I think that a lot of people look at the success of various business men and women and assume that it's easy or that there's, it's always this constant upward trajectory. And I know for me that there's, there's a ton of ups and downs and roller coasters and doubt. And, you know, you're gambling with your money and you're gambling with your time and your reputation and your connections. And it's a real emotional, roller coaster that I feel we often don't, we just try to sweep under the rug. Did any of that happen with you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, you know, I'd had a lot of success at Costa and then at the end, um, you know, I, it was, it was emotional to leave something. It was like a marriage ending or, you know, something like that. And so that was really emotional. And then I jumped right in to Sims and, and just kept going full speed. And then after all of that just didn't work out, 
Um, it was, you know, October of what, 19, I guess last year. Um, and you know, we were, we were sitting there just kind of exhausted and, um, you know, I, my confidence was sort of rattled. I had some of my close friends saying, Hey, what's going on with you, man? You know, you were like the rock star at Costa and now shit's not working out for you. You know, what's going on? Are you really not as good as we thought you were? I'm like, I don't know, man, maybe I'm not. And, um, but it was just a question of, of kind of doing some inward soul searching and taking a little bit of time off and, um, and just having to talk with myself and saying, Hey, what do you really want to do? And, you know, who do you want to be? And do you want to just like say, Hey, Costa was your legacy and go off and consult or do something like that. Or if you still got something in the tank and I was like, man, I've got something in the tank. And so it was, you know, you, you first, you start off, you got to sell yourself on it and being able to do it. And then you got to sell your family on it. And then, and then we had to sell investors on it. And so I had never done that before. And luckily I met a guy who had, and he helped walk me through it. But um, it was, you know, come up with a plan and then go and knock on doors and call everybody you've ever known. And it's kind of embarrassing and it's kind of weird, but, uh, but, you know, just take it step by step and, and then, you know, and then in our case, after making those decisions and, and things started to go well, COVID hit. And so I'd actually raised most of the money I needed to raise. And a week, I, went, I was fishing in the March, in the March Merkin in, in March of, of 20. And driving down there, I decided I'm just going to go by and talk to everybody I know and see if they'd be willing to invest in my company. And by the time I got to Key West, I had pretty much all the money raised, you know. And then I turned around after the Merkin and came back. And on the way back, COVID hit. And then everybody was like, well, I'm going to put my checkbook away. I don't think we're ready to do this. So then I had to just sit on my hands for three months, you know, and just wait and see, is it going to come back? Are we going to be able to do this? And the clock was ticking because it takes a long time, you know, to make sunglasses and to build a business and all that sort of thing. But it was an awesome time because we sat there and just all day long in our house in Charleston, you know, I had this office upstairs and looked out over the trees and the woods and the wind would blow and I'd just sit there and think and, you know, and envision what we wanted this to be. Um, and, uh, and that's when the idea for Bahio really came to fruition. So after COVID subsided a little bit, we went back out there and raised the money all over again. And then we were off and running. So it was great. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. I think that those ups and downs just make you stronger because it's those moments of doubt. You know, the ones I'm talking about when you seriously look at yourself and you're like, am I am I even good at what I do? Was it just from who I knew? Do I actually understand this business? Do I, am I a loser? Am I relevant? What do I look like publicly? All of those questions. I think that they really do. I, I, I don't know. I just, I think that they can make your business so much more powerful 
So let's talk a little bit about what the sunglasses are, why they're different, um, how they're more, how they're responsibly made, all of that fun stuff. Do you want to lead me down that path? Yeah, sure. You know, it was it was really interesting just to kind of sit there with a somewhat a blank piece of paper and just have to create something from scratch, you know. And even though you know we'd been down the path before and worked in sunglasses and whatnot before, you know, each brand is I you know, I think they're sort of like people, you know, and and so you're having to figure out how they look, how they feel, what their personality is, how they talk, um, what kind of things they do, what are they, what's their work, what's their spare time hobbies, you know, and just you have to think through all of that. And it was so it's it's a pretty my sculpture training comes in um, and helps a lot there because I'm sort of creating a, a sculpture in a way. Um, but where you know where I really wanted to start with this was, you know, was the mission of it. You know, we we wanted to create a business that was wholly dedicated to helping, you know. And and so we asked ourselves, you know, Mark and I, hey, what do we love the most in the world? You know, what do we care about the most? And, you know, we care about a lot of things, but we we love the flats, you know, that part of the world. And we spent a lot of time in the flats. And we love the people, the indigenous people who live there, you know, and I'm always on the side, I think, of the underdog. And I feel like with whatever colonialism and, um, you know, conquest that have occurred uh, that, you know, in the name of resources, in the name of money, a lot of these folks have gotten, you know, really have dealt a bad hand. And, uh, And I've always just identified with that. Maybe it's growing up in the South and seeing a lot of a lot of that there, you know, but um, so we knew that we wanted to live in the flats with this brand. We knew that we wanted to um, have a mission of helping those people and also helping the environment and knowing that those two things are really related to each other. Uh, but then it was a question of, well, how do you form that and articulate it? And it's, it's an ongoing process, you know, to get, to get tight on it. But we also wanted to, you know, I think again, inspired by Patagonia maybe, but we wanted to build a clean company, so a company that has sustainable materials that really thinks about the impact of everything that we're doing. Um, so those were sort of the two pillars, and you know they have to be the glasses have to be quality. So you know we had to find lens technology that was sort of the next generation. We wanted to find you know high performance frames and all that kind of stuff. So the product is always important, extremely important. But I think we started with the mission uh, of the company. And to us, that's the most important thing. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what are the, obviously the lenses are made from glass? We have glass and we have plastic. And, you know, what, the thing that we wanted to, fo- that we focus on with the lenses is reducing blue light. And you hear a lot about blue light reduction from your computer screens and the LED lights. It's all this inside stuff, especially with COVID, that just became so important to wear, you know, clear blue light protecting glasses because what it does it makes it hard for you to sleep because your body stops producing melatonin and so you find these video gamers who just can't sleep and it's because of that so when they wear the blue light glasses your body naturally produces melatonin and you feel better you sleep better you're in a better mood so yeah that's kind of where we started the sun produces more blue light than anything else by far So if you're out on the water, you're out in the sun all the time like we are, it's really important to block that blue light. It also creates this haze. You know, if you look at a blue light bulb, you see all this haze around it. So if you eliminate the blue, then you eliminate the haze. And so everything gets clear. So when people put the glasses on, they're like, wow, these are so clear. Every time, that's what they say. And so it... You know, it ties into kind of the youth that we're marketing to. It ties into so, something that's new and modern and different, and it, it really works. So that's sort of the lens technology story. I, I know that this is probably boring for you, but it's fascinating to me. Lens color versus the conditions that you're fishing. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. When do you need blue lenses versus yellow, amber, all of that fun stuff? Well, I think... You know, there's a lot of differing opinions on things and a lot, you know, a lot of it is just sort of experimentation and figuring out what you like the best. Uh, the, I guess the standard answer is that blue lenses usually have a gray base. So you, a lens has a lot of different parts to it and it can get super technical if you want it to, but it has a base color. And then you'll have a polarized film will have a color. And then you'll have a mirror on top of that, which will also have a color. And all of those things interact with each other and create sort of a different visual experience. I didn't feel like enough had been done to sort of play around with those things and experiment with those things. Most of the brands have either a copper base or a gray base and a green mirror or a blue mirror, maybe a silver. So I wanted to try different combinations of base lens, mirror, polarized film, and see what we got. So we have um, we have a blue lens with a gray base. We have a green lens with a brown or copper base. We have a silver with a copper. Then we have a rose with a rose base. And then we have uh, soon a yellow with a yellow base. And so the combination of those things with different polarized films creates each one is very unique the 
oddly enough, the pink one that we made, people were like, you're doing a pink lens. Are you kidding me? Nobody's going to wear that. Our, our most popular lens. People are blown away um, by that lens. And the, the reason they are is because when you're out flats fishing, you can try them. You can try all the different ones. And that one, you can see like three or four feet deeper into the water than the other ones. So typically, to get back to your question, gray gives you pretty much the natural colors. You're going to see the world like it appears. When you get into the browns and then up to the roses, it becomes more high contrast. So if you're trying to look at a fish against the bottom when you're flats fishing, you're going to probably use a copper or a rose-based lens because that's going to make the fish pop. You're going to see it a lot easier and a lot better. So that's, um, you know, I would agree with that in general. And then there's just, you know, variations of it when you start playing around with the different colors. Right. Okay. That all makes sense. It's funny because I remember the first time I heard about polarized sunglasses and rolling my eyes going, yeah, yeah, you can see into the water, but they obviously work amazingly. Can you explain to people who are also rolling their eyes right now, how polarized glasses work and why they are so superior to regular glasses? Yeah. The polarized film, it just knocks the glare off. So it has, um, if you think of it sort of like a Venetian blind with shutters going horizontal, uh, those shutters block the reflected glare. And so with the reflected glare gone, you can see down into the water much better. And so when you're making a pair of polarized glasses, you have to line up the left lens with the right lens so that that polarization is going the same way in order for it to work. But And there's different levels of polarizing efficiency. So it's some... Some film will block, you know, be 99% efficient. So you're going to get a higher percentage of the glare blocked. Some might be a 90 or 92 and some are even down in the 60s. I think you have to be in the 80s somewhere before you can actually call it polarized. But, um, you know, it's something to ask when you're when you're shopping, maybe. Yeah, gotcha. Now, this is a can of worms that I'm not entirely sure about opening because I don't know. To be totally honest, I'm sick to death of talking about it, but <laughs> I'm going to ask you anyway, because I think you're the perfect person to ask. So as somebody who understands marketing and sales, conversions, and owning your own company, a new company, how are you going to manage things like influencers and this new age of marketing? It seems to be this highly contentious subject that is hard for a lot of us as business owners to navigate and, and manage. Have you experienced any of this yet? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have, you know, we've signed, signed up some influencers. Our PR agency has signed some influencers and, you know, we have to approve all of them. So we're, we're really looking for people who are authentic, um, who have something to say and aren't just sort of posing for pictures, trying to get as many social media followers as possible. Um, we also have community leaders. So one of the things that we started years ago was community-based marketing. And so I hired community leaders, people within that community of fishing or whatever that community might be, and so their job is to really find the right kind of people that are a good brand fit for us. And uh, so, you know, I was talking with, with Heather Harkavy, who's our, our young fly community leader, and she's helping us really bring in a lot of these young folks that, um, 
you know, I'm like a granddad to them, I guess. But, uh, you know, she, she said, look, I've got friends who just want to make me money off of social media. And they'll say to me, let's go down the river and, and fish so we can get some good social content. She's like, no, I'm not going. You put the camera down. If we're going fishing, we're going fishing. Okay. We're not going to get content. And so that's, I think that's the philosophy that, that we have, you know, is separate those two things as much as you can. Um, I still am just a huge believer in storytelling though. And, you know, I, there, I think, I mean, you can look at the popularity of movies. You can look at the popularity of books and, you know, I, I think you can see that people are just drawn to a great story, you know, and, and there's plenty of, plenty of awesome social influencers out there who, you know, know how to tell a great story. And those are the ones that we really look for. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the hardest thing to do is tell a great story. I mean, and there's, you know, when you, when you look at these films that are out there, even in our fly industry, everybody's gotten a lot better at the cinematography part of it and just getting that picture of the trout sipping in slow motion and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, after a few minutes, you're like, okay, I got it. Beautiful. What's the story? story. (laughs) Yeah. What's the story? And I mean, when somebody can say, Hey, you got a minute, let me tell you this great story. You're like, okay, you know, let me get the popcorn. Let me sit down. Let me get a cocktail. I want to hear this story. And you've got them and they're sitting on the edge of your seat and you take them on this ride and they're just, you know, that's a, that's storytelling. That's a story. And so I think whether you're a social influencer or a filmmaker or anybody that, you know, our job and our challenge is to tell great stories that have great mythology to them, a great moral to the story that are going to put something positive uh, or negative, whatever, out into the world, you know, but they're going to put something out there that's not just sort of, not just uh, volume, but quality, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I love it. So today we use the word influencer, which everybody seems to have a different meaning for. But 17 years ago, 20 years ago, what were these people called? They weren't influencers. If, if there's anyone to ask, it's you. What what were they called 20 years ago? Well, in fishing, they were the pros, you know. So it was, it was, I always looked at it as this is it. This is somebody because of how they live their life or the skills that they've developed or their accomplishments are somebody that people kind of look up to. And so they influence others by their actions. You know, I was, I was real tight with Jose Wahebe uh, years ago before he passed away. And I just, I think he just had an amazing attitude about all this because he was sort of the top guy in fishing back then, you know, and, and Jose was like, look, man, I don't, I don't use my platform to preach. I just sort of teach by example. And I'm not going to talk about conservation, but if you watch my shows, you'll see that the way I treat the fish and the way I act um, is the way that I would like for other people to act, you know? And when we would go on a fishing trip, he would like, <clears throat> you know, for a photo shoot or whatever, he would always stay at a locally owned lodge. So we go to Mexico, we'd go to Boca Paella where two Mexican brothers own this lodge. 
as opposed to going, you know, to a place that was, was owned by a gringo, you know? And so he just, he, he just lived his life um, in a, sort of an exemplary way. And he influenced a lot of people just sort of quietly, you know, by doing that. Maybe that's the big disconnect is back in the day, they were called pros, which automatically makes you assume that they're professional anglers. They're clearly talented at what they do. They've been doing it a long time. And now with the shift, just even in with our with our words, using the word influencer, it's no longer just about how skilled you are, but it's like you said, how you live your life. Were there any of those 20 years ago? I mean, I can think of a handful of, of fishing celebrities who weren't necessarily the most skilled, but they had a television show or they were charismatic or lovable or relatable. That's a big one, being relatable or inspirational. And, and as a result, they were celebrities. I don't know if I call them pros, but they were celebrities and they were loved celebrities. Do you ever look at someone and go, oh, well, they're a skilled, they're an okay angler, but their personality and how relatable they are and their storytelling skills makes us really want them not so much how how skilled they are at fishing. Have, have you been in that situation? Yeah. I mean, we tend to avoid the folks with huge uh, social followings lots of times. And it's not that a big social following is bad, but I think it's really in all this stuff, it's about what is the inward motivation that people have. And I think in general, folks who, you know, are sort of focused on making themselves famous or, you know, making themselves the star and they're really kind of self, self-centered self maybe, as opposed to being focused on something that's not them, but it's somebody else. It's helping somebody else or it's developing the craft or whatever it might be. And I think as a society, we sort of value people who are kind of not self-centered, that are selfless and that are other people-centered. And, and so those are folks that... Um, aren't chasing it necessarily. They're letting it come to them. And people who, you know, when it all comes to you, when it comes, comes to that person, uh, that's powerful because they're sort of, you know, they've got that magnetism, I guess, that's drawing people in as opposed to running after and, and chasing it. So I think it's, I think those are more powerful personalities and more powerful people in general. You stand for everything that the fly fishing industry seems to love. So on that note, how have you been received? Has everybody been, has everyone been relatively receptive? Yeah, it's, you know, I just, uh, I'm, I'm always pretty transparent, I guess, but it's been some of the people that I thought would just really be supportive have not been some of my closest friends and some of the people, uh, that I didn't even, weren't even on my radar have just come out and been so helpful and, and just so supportive that it's, it's, uh, that has been interesting to see, you know, and take note of that for the future, I guess. But, um, in general, I mean, so many people have just gone out of their way to say, Hey man, we're rooting for you and great job. We're proud of you or whatever they might say. And, uh, and I think in the industry too, the retailers, um, you know, have 
have just been really, really welcoming. The small guys, you know, because, I don't know, they love the fact that we sort of, you know, we try to, I like to just treat everybody like people and humans. You're not a retailer or a pro or any of that. You're just a person, right? And and so, you know, you don't get to say, you know, get on a soapbox sometimes, but I, when I hear people say, well, it's just business, businesses act that way. No, you don't get a pass because it's just business. You're a business is made up of people and you can't hide behind the facade. You got to act like a legit good person, no matter what. Right. And so anyway, I, I think carrying that philosophy, it's a little bit more like human based into that kind of relationship and contrasting that to how some of those guys have been treated in the last few years by some of these big corporations that they've, they're running up against. Um, it's a breath of fresh air to them, and, and they really support it. And they support – you know, it's funny. I, you know, I wanted to make sustainable products, and, but I really didn't think like the old fishing crowd would respond to that. And I wanted to market to young people because I wanted to bring them in to the sport, bring them into the outdoors, bring them into conservation. Uh, and I really felt like some of the bigger brands had walked away from that young market. And, but I thought that the old school fishing dudes in Florida and whatnot would not, that's not what they would gravitate towards. But I was wrong. They're like, man, we love that your products are sustainable. And man, we love that you're bringing young people into the sport. Those are the two things that they love the most, you know? So um, I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but the uh, the response from those retailers on a lot of levels has has been really really great and really powerful. The pros, same thing, um, and then just you know friends and and you know others uh, that you know I've known over the years have just kind of come out of the woodwork. I hadn't talked to in years, and they you know give me a go for it kind of thing. So it's been great. Yeah, I'm excited for you. I think it's going to be great. Tell me a little bit about IndieFly. I know you were a big part of that. Yeah, IndieFly was something that um, I started when I was at Costa. And we had done a project in Guyana, you know, at Rewa, And it's gotten a lot of publicity over the years. And it was uh, it was just a crazy story how that whole thing happened. But um, we... Uh, we took the success of that and I said, you know what, I'd, I'd like to create a foundation that um, takes this model that we did at Rewa and allows us to take it to other places in the world. Because this, you know, which is to help indigenous people build sustainable fly fishing businesses. And um, so Oliver White had been working with me really closely uh, at Rewa over the years. I'd brought him in to that project. And then he probably did more for them than I ever did because uh, he helped build the lodge and everything else. Uh, and then, uh, you know, another friend of ours, uh, we brought in to, you know, to sort of be the, the business side of it. And then we started and, and I wanted to be, I wanted it to be separate from Costa because I thought, Hey, when I leave Costa someday, I might want to just work for IndieFly full time. So the three of us started it and, um, uh, and we, you know, did a couple of other other projects. And I was chairman of the board. And when I did Bahio, I turned the reins over to Oliver and Matt and just said, uh, you know, go for it, guys. I don't really 
have as much time as I used to. So they're, they're definitely running it now. And I'm still on the board, still helping out as much as I can. And I'm hoping that Bahio now can come back in and be a, a driver behind Indy Fly over time. Although, um, yeah, so as long as the other sponsors will step aside and, and let us do that. You just dangled a carrot th- there for me. You said that there's a story. It's a crazy story how it happened. Come on, you got to spill. So what happened? How did it happen? Okay, so so I was sitting in my office at Costa one day, and this guy, uh, Robert Arrington was his name, just drops by. He's got a cowboy hat. He's got blue jeans. He's like, hey, man, I just, you know, i got a TV show that's coming up, and we're just chit-chatting. And and I told him that I was, you know, looking for some stories and uh, around conservation and, you know, sort of adventure explore types of deals. He goes, man, I just got back from this place called Guyana. And you would, this place was incredible. And there's an amazing story about uh, this little village. He said all the villages around them had been poaching and let all the Brazilians in to kill all the Arapaima and stuff. But these guys uh, had decided they wanted to stop poaching even though they didn't have any other alternative income, but they wanted their kids and their grandkids to be able to experience all the wildlife there. And he said, you got to come. So um, I'm like, all right, let's do an exploratory mission. So we hopped on a plane, went to Guyana, and we we spent a week there fishing. And we had delayed our trip, so there was bumping right up against the rainy season. And there was hardly any um, any fish. You know, I was like, man, I thought this was like a paradise and there were so many fish here. Um, and he goes, there normally are, but the, the water's just come up and, and all. And so we, we were trying to catch a bait, a certain bait fish so that we could go in and catch an, an arapaima. And we could not catch bait fish anywhere. So we're in this little boat, this little dugout canoe. And all of a sudden, this fish jumps out of the water and lands in the boat. And it's the fish that we had been looking for. So I picked up the fish, hooked it up because we were using bait at that time, not fly rods, hooked it up, cast it in, caught an arapaima with that fish. And the guy who was with us, Fred, who's an 85-year-old indigenous dude down there, he goes, yeah, that's the owner of the pond did that, so you'll come back. I'm like, the owner? He says, yeah, the gods, they call owners, and each pond has a god. And so he made made that happen for you so that you would come back. And Swear to God, that's exactly how that happened. So we went back to the lodge and or to the little place we were staying. And um, and it just popped in my head. I was like, man, what could be an answer to their problem is to create a fly fishing lodge here. And it's really rural and it's like out in the middle of nowhere. And it would be a whole sort of cultural experience because I could come and hang out in this little village. that only has 250 people in the middle of the rainforest. And it just was like fully blown. This is what we need to do. So I told them, you know, hey, man, here's the idea. They called all the chiefs together. We sat around the table and Al, tell them your idea. I told them the idea and they're like, okay, we'll do it. When are you coming back? I'm like, I don't know, man. I worked for a sunglass company. I just came down here for a week. But one thing led to another and we just kept coming back. And this whole thing happened and we made a little film. I had Lucy, my filmmaker, she would just come down with me and we started shooting this film and it probably took us like five years. And then I remember she called me. We couldn't figure out exactly how 
this this story would happen in a film because we had been shooting for a long time. And she called me. I was sitting on my porch smoking a cigar at the end of the day. And she goes, Al, I got it. Here's the story. And she laid the story out. And uh, and and I'm like, awesome. I said, no, we're going to get in Sundance. And she's like, no, we're not getting in Sundance. We're never getting in Sundance. So then roll forward. She edits this thing, puts it together. I'm like, send it to Sundance. She's like, all right. So she sends it to Sundance. I get another call. She goes, Al, what? <laughs> You're not going to believe. I'm not joking, okay? But Sundance just called me, and we won. What? Out of 5,000 small films, our little film won. I'm like, see? I told you. We are going to win the Sundance Award. So anyway, we went to Sundance. So they had this big ceremony for us. It was, it was really cool. And that then helped sort of catapult the, uh, the project. Um, we went to Washington, and all these people came in and watched the film. And having that film and having it win a Sundance Award, you know, that sort of gave us our ticket into all the places we needed to go to get IndieFly started and to get uh, – get people behind it. Oh, that's so cool. I'm so happy that you were able to dive into that. Is there more than one lodge now? Well, we did a we did a project at, in Anna in uh, French Polynesia. And uh, that one, you know, lots of cool stories there. That was really been really successful. And that one, the little kids and the school teacher went around to all the houses and got them to agree to not catch the bonefish during the spawn. They called it a rahui. And the kids were able to take control of that situation and get them to stop poaching the bonefish during that period. So that was a really cool one. And then the biggest one that we're working on now is in the United States on an Indian reservation in Wind River with the Shoshone and the Rapaho. And we're super excited about that one because if we're able to make that model work, then there's a lot of tribes and a lot of reservations all over the country. They've got over 50 million acres of uh, natural land. And, uh, so we think it's a model that can really help, help our indigenous people in the United States. Um, and, uh, so that's going great. And we're super excited about that one too. I was going to ask if you were doing anything in America. So look, I'll let you get back to your night. It's getting late there, but I guess I have one last question. I mean, I've got a million questions for you, but my last question for the podcast is just as far as advice goes to other aspiring entrepreneurs, people who were like you, maybe they were either in a job or transitioning out of a job and were a little bit nervous about making the leap. Do you have any advice for those people? It's, you know, I would say that it's not as bad as you might think, (laughs) you know, that if, if you trust your gut, you got to have a good plan. You got to be smart. But in the end, it's when it's time to pull the trigger, it's not about that. It's about just trusting, you know, taking the leap. And, uh, you know, some ad agency wrote a line for us one time that I thought was great. And it said, it said, jump and the universe will catch you. And I just love that idea. And it's true. There's a universe out there that'll catch you. Um, So just jump. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. I'm going to use that. Uh, So is there anything that you would like to add? I know that we haven't been able to cover your entire timeline, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to add or to ask me before we wrap it up? Um, no, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know where, I think what, what we're focused on and what I'm focused on is just kind of trying to do 
the best that we can do and not get into comparisons and not get, get into turf battles and all this kind of stuff. And I think if everybody, instead of trying to kill the other guy, just sort of focus on being the best of you that you can be. And, you know, a little cliche there, but um, honestly, we'd all be in, in a much better situation and more energy would be spent on doing things that really matter than, uh, than beat, beating the other dude. So, and that goes across politics and everything else these days, you know, let's just treat each other right. And let's just, uh, you know, be the best, do the best job we can of what we're doing. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 